Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Not A Fib podcast, powered by the Journal of Emergency Medical Services. Uh, my name is Mark Flotter. I hope everyone had a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year 2024. Over the course of the years, I have discussed Missouri's Medicaid supplemental payment program for ground ambulance transportation in this column. This program is commonly referred to as Missouri GEMT. More than half states in the country have similar programs with several more states planning to implement programs pending federal approval. I personally think these programs are essential to EMS as the entire industry struggles financially to be able to provide our essential life-saving services to our communities. Medicaid reimbursement in general does not even cover the cost of providing ambulance services to Medicaid beneficiaries. The Missouri GEMT program, like all others around the country, is designed to help providers be made whole for serving Medicaid beneficiaries at a financial deficit. We operate in a highly regulated industry. Compliance with countless local, state, and federal rules and regulations is part of the deal. It's no different with the Missouri GEMT program. For those who participate, it's important that you do so in compliance with the relevant rules and regulations, but that's true for just about everything you do on a daily basis. This is not the first time I've conveyed this to readers of this column. A year ago, I wrote an article here warning about potential comp compliance issues related to Medicaid supplemental payment programs such as Missouri GEMT. The Office of Inspector General, OIG, of the United States Department of Health and Human Services has now made these concerns official by announcing it will investigate ambulance supplemental payment programs across the country. Last month, the OIG added the following to its official work plan. Some states have implemented uncompensated care payment programs that allow ambulance providers to receive supplemental payments for services provided to Medicaid beneficiaries and uninsured patients. We will conduct audits of selected states to determine whether the state's claims for federal reimbursement for supplemental payments to these providers complied with federal and state requirements. That is an excerpt uh, from an article uh, written by Kevin Fairley. Kevin is a national healthcare attorney who has specialized in representing fire and EMS organizations across the country for more than 20 years. His expertise is in complex federal investigations led by the U.S. Department of Justice and the Office of Inspector General, OIG, of the Department of Health and Human Services. He also has significant experience representing fire EMS organizations with Medicaid fraud control unit investigations, state licensing board investigations, Medicare, Medicaid cost report audits, and the full spectrum of legal matters facing EMS and fire entities. Kevin has served as CEO and chief compliance office to national and regional EMS organizations and is outside counsel to numerous fire EMS and air ambulance operators. He has spoken to thousands of fire chiefs and EMS leaders over the years, is a frequent guest lecturer at national conferences, and his articles on legal matters are published regularly in national fire and EMS publications. He earned his law degree and a Master of Healthcare Administration degree from the University of Missouri. And I am pleased to welcome Kevin Fairley to the podcast. Good afternoon, Kevin. Wow. Um, thanks, Mark. I, I appreciate it. That, um that's maybe the the nicest intro I've I've had. I feel pretty good about myself hearing that. Good, as well you should. As well you should. <laughs> um, before we jump into uh, some of the things you discussed in the article, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got uh, involved with EMS, uh, or is this something that that you set your sights on uh, from the time you were in law school? Well, I was um, <clears throat> I was always always planned on being a healthcare attorney. Um, and that's what I, I did um, I, I, or have been doing, I guess, going on 25 years now. Um, I sort of fell into EMS um, by accident. Uh, the, the first really large federal investigation involving EMS and, and ambulance uh, started probably around 2000. I got out of law school in 99. And um, in, in 2003, I went to work for that. Um, it, it was a it was a ambulance service, not for profit, jointly owned by two uh, local health systems. A large one doing 80 to 90 thousand transports a year, and they were investigated 
by the feds, the Department of Justice, for fraud. Um, the executive director went to federal prison. They were hit with $5 million in fines, um, had to enter into a corporate integrity agreement. And so they brought me in-house to be general counsel and compliance officer to clean up that organization. So that was in 2003, um, so 20 years ago. And um, really from that point forward, although I have worked with, with health systems, I've been general counsel and compliance officer to the health system and, and work with other healthcare entities, by far uh, my primary focus is EMS. Um, and, you know, I would say the first two thirds of that was primarily with for-profit, um, private entities, because that's where the, uh, federal focus always was from a regulatory perspective. Um, now that's completely changed for me, um, in the past five years and now today it's completely changed to where I would say nearly 100% of my time is spent with, you know, counties, cities, fire departments, fire districts, ambulance districts, um, not-for-profits, because that's where the federal focus is. Um, so that's just a, a brief kind of history of, of where I've been and, and how I got to this point in EMS. I understand. And, and those of us that are in the St. Louis area uh, without naming names uh, know exactly the situation that you described, know the company that was involved. I, I was an employee of the company at that time. Um, so I didn't realize I, that. Yes. Yes, I was. Uh, oh. I was I, I was part time, but I was still uh, still employee of the company. Uh, so while I'm not intimately familiar with uh, everything that was happening, uh, as an employee, we had a general idea uh, of what was going on. So, um, so right. yeah, that was that was that. You're you are right. That was probably one of the first landmark cases uh, of Medicare fraud. Uh, of serious, you mentioned the the executive director did uh, federal prison time, uh, millions of dollars in fines. That was one of the the biggest uh, cases to to kick off the Medicare fraud uh, that we've seen over the last twenty years. Yeah, yeah. No, I I can't believe I'm just now learning that um, <laughs> you you were you were there. So I mean, yeah, you you know about that sort of thing, and and it is interesting. You know, we always do a pretty good job of keeping those sorts of things quiet. Um, so a lot of times, employees don't even really fully know what's going on. Um, so, well, uh, right. yeah, interesting to learn that. Yes. Um, so let, let's start off a little bit. Uh, let's talk about, if you don't mind, the state supplemental reimbursement programs. Uh, as I mentioned, or as you mentioned, I should say, in the article, uh, over half the states, I think it's a number close to 30, have some sort of uh, a program. How did these programs come about uh, and, and what was the impetus behind uh, their creation? Yeah, um, and and. Guys, I'd like, I'm going to have to go back and reread that. I think I wrote that <laughs> six months or so ago. Um, it wasn't too bad. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I could get into all the technical aspects of, of these programs, but, um, it, you know, it, 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 there, there is a, there's a, a federal process where states can amend their contract uh, with the with the Department of Health and Human Services with CMS um, for Medicaid and 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 it allows for additional payments um, for Medicaid ambulance uh, services and this is not unique to EMS and, and, and ambulance it's just more and more states and more um, and I'm not an expert on all of these across the country by any means, but in general, um, people figured out that one, like I said, you know, we all know that Medicaid just, it doesn't pay very much and in and, and general doesn't cover the cost of operations. So um, states and, and the EMS 
entities within those states figured out that they could pass these plan amendments and get these programs implemented, which are, uh, in, you know, generally called Medicaid supplemental payment programs. In Missouri, we, we refer to it as GMT. But, um, and this really took off, oh, it seems, you know, five to maybe 10 years ago. Um, you know, if we use Missouri as an example, our first year here in Missouri was 2018, but of course there were a few years before that getting it passed. Um, there has to be amendments within state regs and then that, and then certain documents are submitted to CMS and CMS must approve it. And once all that gets done, then the, the program kicks off. Yeah, our, the organization for which I work, we've participated since 2018. Um, and for those uh, that may not be familiar with the acronym GEMT, uh, here in Missouri stands for Ground Emergency Medical Transport. Uh, it, and it's been a, a significant um, provider of additional revenue for our organization uh, in, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars range. Uh, so when when this first started, uh, it, it was, uh, as, as you mentioned in the article, as our, our organization's accountant mentioned, uh, it was highly encouraged that we participate uh, in the program. And we did. And like I mentioned, the revenue that we got back was significant. Um, but uh, it, it seemed to be one of these uh, programs or one of these situations where it was almost too good to be true. And as the old adage goes, if something's too good to be true, uh, it usually is. So um, <laughs> it, earlier this year uh, at the Pinnacle EMS uh, Leadership Conference uh, in uh, July down in San Antonio, uh, you did a presentation where you talked about how these uh, programs now uh, are under the scrutiny uh, of the OIG, like you mentioned in the article. Um, can you talk about what led to the OIG or these programs being on the OIG's radar? Yeah, sure. And, um, of course, I don't know exactly what, you know, I'm not in the room with the Fed, so I don't know exactly what they're thinking. Sure. Um, but, but you know, in general, um, well, we could go back even a year and a half, um, I guess, from now. So in August of 22, CMS, issued a a memo so it's it's not um you know it's not law it's not regs uh, but it does carry some weight a legal weight um and it's out there online and and available where cms they had an overview of their concerns with these um supplemental payment programs that involved ambulance services um so that was in 22 and it's uh i actually have it here on my computer it's a fairly lengthy document um it looks like it's you know eight to ten pages and so they they outline there um a number of their concerns with the way that these programs have been set up and and run <clears throat> and um that really involves cost allocations and and so the way these programs work is the reimbursement um, has to be for EMS ambulance related services and I'm you know I am I'm hitting this from a very high level um, and and there are and the, the memo refers to it has a lot of citations to federal statutes and stuff and, and one thing going back even further is cost reimbursement has been around for a long time and the hospitals have done it um uh, nursing homes um so they do a cost report you know and at the end of the year there's kind of a true up and they may get additional funds that's essentially what these the is what is going on with the ambulance. Um, so there's all sorts of, of federal guidance and regulations that, that talk about cost allocations and what's appropriate and how you do it. 
Um, and essentially what CMS is saying in, in this memo was they're concerned that states aren't um, appropriately running these programs and potentially services. So if it trickles down, um, you know, to yours that participates um, are potentially being reimbursed additional funds for things that don't really fit into the federal guidelines for cost reimbursement. So they said, you know, um, more than a year ago, we we have these concerns. And then, like you said, in, in July, um, which was right, just maybe less than a week before I spoke at Pinnacle, the OIG came out and officially uh, um, announced. And so the OIG, they have what's called their work plan. Um, and the OIG will have investigations going on all the time that, you know, nobody necessarily knows about. They're quiet. But they will occasionally come out and announce, hey, this is a big issue, a big national issue, and we are going to look at this across the country. And um, that's what I spoke about in, uh, in, at, at Pinnacle, is they did in July come out and say, and, and you already quoted this, I believe, in the article, but um, <clears throat> it says, you know, that states have implemented these programs and they are going to conduct audits of selected states to determine whether the states are complying with federal requirements. Um, so I'll shut up for a minute because I could probably ramble on <laughs> forever about that. But but that's where we are now. Um, they have, in July, they officially announced that they are, so we, we can assume that these investigations, audits are happening across the country. Again, those tend to stay pretty quiet. So I personally don't know where or at what stage those investigations are, but I can guarantee you that they are occurring out there. And that would stand to reason. And for those that are participating in the programs, not only here in Missouri, uh, but in other states, uh, I guess the question, uh, if this is something that's just now people are hearing about, uh, the question would be, are, 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 is the OIG going after the administrators of the state program? Or are they going after the participants? Or are they going after both? Yeah, and that's, it's hard to say at this stage. Um, at least I don't, again, I don't have any evidence um, that they're going after the individual providers. And I'll use the term provider, even though CMS says supplier, but, you know, the individual agencies or organizations, the way that they, the OIG has stated this, you know, and the wording is, we are going to look at the state. Now, you know, in my experience, the way that works is, again, there is a trickle-down effect, right? Um, so, if the state suddenly has scrutiny and their Medicaid uh, organization, what you know, within your state, whatever it's called, it's Mo Health Net here in Missouri. If all of a sudden they've got the feds and investigators asking them questions, um, you know, it's not a stretch to think that maybe the state attorney general's office starts getting involved. Um, and they're going to look at documents, you know, the cost reports that were submitted by the individual agencies. And it just would stand to reason, it's my opinion, that we'll see over the course of the next year or two. These investigations always take forever. Um, it would not surprise me for individual agencies to start getting caught up into this. So for those of us that are providers... And we hear this, one of the first questions that we're going to probably ask ourselves is, what can we do to prepare or to be prepared uh, to cover ourselves in the event that the OIG or someone comes knocking on our door to do one of these audits? 
Yeah, that 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 is a good question. And guys, I didn't think of what order I want to try and answer that. Um, I, I want to I want to be sure to talk about compliance programs, and it's something that I've been preaching for a long time. Um, I think we'll loop back around to that, but. Um, in, in 2003, the OIG issued um, compliance program guidance for ambulance um, providers. And it's seven elements. Um, everybody needs to have a compliance program. Uh, it, it, it just, um, and, and we can talk more about that, but that is something that's very easy to implement. Um, I work with a company that EMS compliance that provides these services. Um, you know, you can do it yourself. You can work with a company like that to implement it. But as an initial safeguard, uh, that's the number one thing I, I would look at because, um, and, and compliance programs are becoming more and more important um, just last month, the OIG, for the first time in years, you, you can Google it. Um, it's the compliance program guidance, OIG compliance program guidance that's going to pop up. They've issued all sorts of new documentation on what they expect around a compliance program. They have stated in 2024, they're going to update the, the specific industry compliance guidance. So we can expect in sometime in the next 12 months for the ambulance EMS industry to get additional compliance guidance, but they expect these programs to be in place. And these, these programs are designed to be a safety net, um, um, you know, so that you have systems in place so that you, you don't end up getting in trouble um you don't have the oig show up at your door so so that is something everybody should look into and if you know we could we could i i think i've mentioned to you mark i go and talk about this and just that topic alone sometimes is four hours so we don't have time for all of that if people <laughs> have questions you know they can reach out to me um but but that is it's it's almost like an insurance policy, uh, in my opinion. I mean, it's required by law, but it's something that you really need to to have in 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 place. <clears throat> uh, the second thing I would say is, you know, I I have um, written a number of articles in the past specific to GMT or these supplemental payment programs, warning people that participate that there is potential false claims act fraud um, um, the, the type of investigation that we talked about 20 years ago that with the organization we both were involved with um, those those investigations are led by US attorneys and the OIG um, when you sign and submit a cost report for these programs it's essentially a claim for federal reimbursement because you're going to um, presumably get money back and a large chunk of money back. You said for your organization, it was hundreds of thousands of dollars each year, I believe. That's correct. Um, and so, so when that cost report, when you complete that and you submit it, in fact, someone within the organization signs it's a paragraph or two, depending on your state, that says it's in compliance with all the, you know, with CMS guidelines, with federal laws, with the False Claims Act, with everything under the sun. And if you um, submit that and uh, incorrectly, um, ultimately fraudulently, would, is what would get you into trouble, but that term is pretty broad when it comes in to investigations. Um, it could lead to major investigations into an organization such as yours, just hypothetically. So there's a risk with participating in, in these. Um, 
that kind of big picture, given that we know that um, the feds are looking at the states, you know, one of my pieces of advice is that in, with all of these programs, there is an audit process. So, um, you know, you will submit a cost report and then you receive a chunk of money based on that initial cost report. And then someone, um, it might be the state, it might be a contractor, someone audits that cost report. And, and, and again, this has gone on forever with hospitals and, and other healthcare entities. Then there's this kind of back and forth. It's possible that they come back and say, we agree 100% with your cost report and the money received, it's all good. Closing the audit, everything's fine. More often than not, they come back and say, ah, we don't necessarily agree with this piece or that piece. And, um, you know, they will want to recoup some amount of money, is my experience. Um, just people should keep in mind that that audit is, is it's just an, an audit. And the auditors can be wrong. Often they are wrong. Um, and so my advice is don't simply just go with what the state comes back with. Um, you need to review that closely, just like you did when you prepared the cost report and submitted it, and um, make sure that you agree with their changes. Uh, and, and so that's a back and forth process. And then ultimately, there is a final audit and, and a final settlement on that year's supplemental payment. Um, my concern for a lot of folks, and, may, and I think I maybe mentioned it in that article that you quoted, is um, I think because this is relatively new to EMS, um, these supplemental payments, is that um, folks get these audit results back that say, like, you know, for instance, that says, look, you, you have completed your cost report incorrectly, and we have overpaid you $100,000. You need to send us $100,000 back, kind of how it works. And um, people get that. It's on official-looking letterhead, and they don't question it, and they send $100,000 back. Well, if that's happening year after year, and now we know the OIG and CMS they don't really like these programs and they're saying that they're being operated inappropriately and not in accordance with federal guidelines. If I'm an investigator and sorry, Mark, we keep using your organization and I look at you and for the past five years, you've had to return a hundred thousand plus dollars each year what's that going to make me think? Right. It's going to raise some red flags saying Mark and his team, they are not doing this correctly and they're receiving money they shouldn't be receiving. And that it, it potentially leads to a whole lot of trouble for you guys. Exactly. And, and we had a, a very similar situation. We had a, uh, a recoupment, uh, as you mentioned, uh, this was earlier in 2023. And what we did is we complied um, and we just had them remove that amount from the payment that we were going to receive. Um, then in, in July, I sat through your presentation where you just reiterated a lot of the information you just uh, gave the listeners. And you mentioned some of the issues with these auditing firms as specific to EMS, uh, the mistakes were made. Sometimes they don't know how to uh, work with EMS agencies. They try to apply uh, parameters for uh, hospitals and other facilities to EMS. And, and we all know in EMS that that just won't work. Uh, and then yeah. after, after we got back from Pinnacle, uh, we got another letter for recruitment. Um, and then we brought you on board to, uh, to, to work with us. Um, so when we talk about these auditing firms, 
you know, uh, how, how much responsibility is on us and, and we're currently having a, an issue with the auditing firm that does Missouri's, uh, but with these other states, uh, it, we talked specifically re- we recently we had a talk about Colorado and how there uh, they contract with a, with a firm uh, that seems to have, uh, for lack of a better term, have their act together. Uh, whereas here in Missouri, we, we haven't had that. We've had a lot of back and forth mind changes. Uh, what can, what can these agencies, these organizations participating, uh, how can they work with these constantly changing parameters from these auditing firms that are doing these audits? Yeah, um, I, I you know it probably doesn't work to say everybody just call me. <laughs> There's only twenty four hours in a day, you know. Um, it, it it's it's um it, it's tricky. Uh, you you know you need to you need to have good consultants and and good people that understand how these processes work. Um, and that's one of my concerns for our industry, you know, across the country is, is there just are limited resources. Um, the people that really understand EMS. Um, but I would say, you know, do whatever you can to, to find resources um, that, that, understand this because you really hit the nail on the head not just with this but with everything you know even going back to the big case 20 years ago you know the oig and cms and 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 especially the oig and i guess the department of justice and the your local u.s attorneys who handle healthcare fraud you know they're responsible for the entire health spectrum of healthcare right? Hospitals and everything. Mm-hmm. And they rarely ever really understand how EMS works. And um, I think that's what we see a lot with these audits. And, and you know, you said that, like, they, some of these consultants out there have done a lot of work with hospitals. Um, and so they, they try and apply the same concepts that they just don't really understand and especially with fire-based EMS where you know you've got to split out costs and and what is truly ambulance or EMS and and what's not um I think that that is 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 the root cause of a lot of these problems with the audit so for me where I spend a lot of time and making or trying to make these investigations go away is just educating the investigators and the auditors and sometimes state Medicaid of, um, you know, this, this is how EMS works. And I'm sorry, you guys have it wrong. Um, you need to know how it works. Uh, we, we've run into that mark here in Missouri where um, they've kind of confused that in EMT, the non-emergency transports with non-emergency ambulance transports, right? And there's nuance there, right? The, the in EMT could be a stretcher van or it could even be a taxi, you know, it could be all sorts of other things. Um, and that took some time to explain to, to folks here in Missouri the difference on that. So... Um, you know, you just, you, you need to find counsel and consultants that, that understand this stuff and can push back on these, on these audits and, and don't just accept these audit results on their face. Right. And that's one of the, I think that's one of the most, one of the biggest takeaways that, uh, I got from your presentation in July was that very fact. Don't accept these uh, at their face. Don't just go along with them. Do a little bit of digging. Ask some questions. Like you said, whether you retain a counsel or contract with a, a firm uh, to to go over uh, this in this data so that you are making sure that you're doing your due diligence and not just blindly 
uh, going along with um, with what these what these auditors uh, are telling you. Yeah, uh, and you know, and and, and um, we've seen uh, on some of these, you know, it doesn't necessarily take an expert like myself. Um, you can look at the audits, and everybody is going to work with um, some type of accountant. You know, um, uh, sometimes the audit results. Are, are so absurd that, you know, just common sense says, wait, there's a problem with this. You know, we've seen situations where um, because the, 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 re, the reimbursement is based on a calculation of the number of ambulance transports, where for some unexplained reason, the auditors have just changed the number of ambulance transports in a year. Well, we're all pretty good at knowing how many ambulance transports we've done in a year. Right. Right. We may be off, but there might be a little dispute here or there, but not, not huge um, changes uh, or, or, or being incorrect. Um, so, you know, I see that quite a bit. If that doesn't take an expert for somebody within the organization could look at that and go, okay, now why do they want $200,000 back? Oh, wait, they changed. And instead of doing 5,000 transports, they have us, they show us doing 3,000 transports. Well, why did they make that change? Um, so if nothing else, you can start just in house, you know, looking at this and saying, Hey, does this make sense? Right, right, and I, I think that's that's something that we've tried to do uh, with our organization as well. Um, so, just changing gears a little bit, you brought it up a few minutes ago. Uh, compliance, the the importance of a compliance program, uh, having one in place. Um, you recently uh, this morning uh, had uh, an email that I received from you where you talked about uh, some of the agencies in our area uh, and lack of compliance programs. Can you talk about the importance of compliance programs? Uh, and, and I'm sure you and I will talk more offline uh, about compliance for our organization, but express a little bit the importance of compliance uh, and why having this compliance program in writing in place is a good safety net uh, for organizations. Yeah, um, <laughs> and again, you can, you know, if you Google it, you can Google OIG compliance guidance for ambulance um that's probably enough to get it to pull up and and that document um is at the federal register and it, it it's kind of a lengthy lawyerly looking um document but it doesn't hurt to go out and look at it um and again there's more and more guidance around that um EMSCompliance.com is a company I work with um, that, that, that you can um, look at uh, just to kind of get an idea. And, and I say that because um, now that I'm working with more fire departments, as I've said, or entities that have not had to pay attention to this, um, it took me a while to realize that I'd go out and speak to a group. And I'd say, do you have a compliance program in place? And either one, they had no idea what I'm talking about. Or two, they they would say, well, yes, we have a compliance program in place. And then once I start talking to them, I realize they're talking more of quality assurance, medical record review, which is not a compliance program that's set out by the OIG. Um, it, it's very specific what they're what they're looking for. Or three, um, what I hear is um, we use a billing company a highly respected billing company that, that just does EMS, they understand that they provide our compliance. That's not correct. Good to have a good billing company. But in fact, one of the seven elements of a compliance program is that you have proper oversight over your vendors and your billing company, et cetera, right? So uh, relying on your billing company is, is, not a, is not a defense. Why they're important, one, again, you know, they, it is now after um, what we all call Obamacare, they made, that made them mandatory. Um, but why it is so critical is because there is now this focus 
on, um, we, even if we just look at Firebase EMS, that never existed before. And so you guys are across the country, OIG agents, FBI, um, even if it's not that scary where they show up at your door, you're getting audited. Um, um, people don't realize that a lot of these EMS audits of your billing that you receive and maybe aren't even aware of because your billing company is handling it is in fact an investigation of you. Um, so there's just so much, there's a bullseye now on the industry where there wasn't before. And if, for instance, something would happen at your organization where you call me and say, Kevin, um, we've got this audit. Uh, I say, start looking at it and it seems like you're being investigated or an, an agent shows up at your door. The first thing I'm gonna ask is do you have a compliance program in place? Because if you do, it makes our lives, my life, and therefore your life so much easier because I can say, look, these guys have implemented what you told them to implement. They have a compliance program in place. They are trying to do the right thing. Um, you know, all those arguments. Uh, and hey, maybe something slipped through the cracks, um, which happens. Um, the compliance programs aren't foolproof things still happen, um, but the, it makes it so much easier to defend, right, and shut down. And so what could easily turn into a three-year investigation where you're being drugged down to the federal courthouse and your board members and your city council members are, 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 are being interviewed by U.S. attorneys, we can shut that, shut that down a lot faster. Um, to me, that is the biggest argument for it. The next gets a little bit technical, and this is where um, um, my broader presentation often takes some time, is that what the feds use to um, enforce these laws or, um, you know, to hold you accountable is the False Claims Act which is, you know, you can't submit uh, a false claim for reimbursement to the federal government, which is these GMT. Um, it's a single uh, claim for ambulance reimbursement as a, as a claim. And <clears throat> under the False Claims Act, they define intent, right? So it makes sense to, if you're going to be held accountable for a law or violating a law, you must have some intent. Um, but this is where they get you. Intent is defined as one, actual knowledge, but then two and three, and I'm just reciting this off the top of my head, is, um, and I don't know if it's the right order, but one is deliberate ignorance, or, or the other is reckless disregard towards the accuracy of those claims. Okay, and and so it, it, this has happened time and time again with me over the past several years. Is they go in and uh, say fire department doesn't have a compliance program. Um, they say, hey, we have a billing company that does this. We have, we rely on them. We trust that they know what they're doing. Um, and but there there's no other safety net in place. There's no compliance program. And I try and defend them. And what the OIG out of Washington, D.C., that's leading most of these investigations, they come back and say, you have still violated the False Claims Act because you have acted with deliberate ignorance and reckless disregard because you had no OIG comp compliance program in place. And that's really hard for me to defend or for us to defend. Um, so that was a mouthful. <laughs> Hopefully it made sense. Um, but but that's, that's why these, these are so important. And again, it's not 
um, you know, there are resources. Uh, you don't have to go out and hire a compliance officer. It's one of the reasons we created EMS Compliance, the, the company, because I knew based on my years of experience, you know, even the largest fire departments, that you, you guys don't have the resources to go out and hire a full-time compliance officer. That's, and that's not an expectation of the OIG. Um, but they do expect that you have these seven elements implemented um, in some reasonable fashion. So that's my quick down and dirty on compliance programs and and their importance. And uh, the truth is, so there there are, you know, um, one of the elements of a compliance program is compliance training. So you educate all your employees about compliance and and about these laws and regulations. There's, um, they call it open lines of communication, but essentially. Um, the expectation is, is that you have an anonymous employee hotline where an employee can call this hotline and report things that they think may be unethical or not in compliance. Um, we just we just issued an update from the OIG. They have to update the um, Congress twice a year, and they had 85 around 85,000 calls the OIG did to their compliance hotline. You would much rather have a compliance program in place where your employee contacts, even if it's an anonymous hotline, and reports it internally, and we address it internally, rather than them go out to the OIG and file a complaint that's going to be investigated. Right, so, Absolutely. So, so that's... So the, the programs work when they're done correctly, you know. So mm -hmm. from the very high level, scary perspective, they're they're really critical in protecting you um, if you're under a full blown investigation. But um, hopefully, they help avoid you ever having to deal with an investigation. Yes, definitely. Uh, as I mentioned, we'll be talking offline uh, about this uh, a little bit further. Um, so as we discuss the the audits, we touch, touched on investigations, compliance programs, and the big question, uh, at least around our organization, is what does the future look like for these state supplemental pro reimbursement programs, given everything that's currently transpiring with these investigations, these audits? Uh, obviously, things aren't going to look the same moving forward as they did over the past several years. Um, is there anything that you can see or know uh, as far as what may change, what uh, providers can expect who are participating in this program, these programs? What can what can they expect going forward? Yeah, my you know, my hope is and and I it sounds like I articulated that in the opening of, of, of the article is, you know, I, we really don't want these programs to go away because they, they are providing um, much needed resources. Um, um, you know, this is not to, to line anybody's pockets or anything. This, this is so that across the country, uh, when someone calls 911, people can actually show up, right? Right, uh, right. It's, it's important funding. So I would expect changes um, because it's probably true that, um, you know, even in Missouri, we, we haven't had a chance to fully dig into it, but there are possibly things where, uh, you know, items that haven't been um, reported correctly, um, not intentionally, but just you know, poor communication about how to complete the cost report, that sort of thing. My hope is that these audits and the investigations simply end up educating the states and people participating in it, how to do it correctly and, and keep CMS happy. 
right? So something's going to come out of this. And, and if the worst case scenario is you have to start completing your cost report a bit differently, um, under different directions with additional guidelines, with additional guidance, which requires you to be a bit more educated or the people, your consultants to be more educated, um, that's not the end of the world, right? Um, and maybe that leads to a bit less in reimbursement um, than you've been used to over the past years. Uh, I think that's the best case scenario. Mm -hmm. the, the worst case scenario is that states go, you know, man, now we have the feds breathing down our necks and this is a nightmare and we don't want to have anything to do with this. And they, and, and, and I, we haven't worked through all the legalities of this, but you know, do these programs just start going away? Um, that's certainly a possibility. Um, we, we do, it's the general understanding that, you know, several states, are in the process have even submitted plans to be approved. So they start getting this, these programs in their states that don't yet have them. Um, you know, and one outcome is that those are put on hold, which I think is the case. Um, so those states, unfortunately, may go a few years without having the program and getting these additional funds. I think that's a pretty there's a pretty good likelihood of that um, as well. Um, so, you know, truly we don't know, um, but I hope that, and it's the approach that I try and take is, hey, let's figure out how to do this right. It's important for everyone. Um, there's a reason why we're doing this for EMS. EMS is under financial strain so let's all work together to figure this out and make it work and, and do it right. Um, I think that's got to be the approach, but, you know, uh, I, I have limited influence across the country, uh, but, but I sure hope that's the way people approach this. I agree. Uh, you absolutely have to approach it that way. Uh, uh, we read, um, if not daily, uh, definitely monthly, weekly uh, of ambulance services uh, shutting down uh, due to financial limitations. Uh, you touched on uh, the Medicaid portion. Uh, Medicaid pays a fraction of what it costs to, to run a call. Uh, so without these reimbursement programs, uh, smaller services, uh, services that, that run a large Medicaid uh, population uh, face a lot of uh, issues uh, keeping keeping ambulances on the road. Uh, you you touched on it earlier in the conversation. If someone calls nine one one, is an ambulance going to show up? Uh, this program helps to make sure that uh, that those resources, those assets, are there uh, when someone dials those numbers. Right, right, yeah, and that that makes me think. You know, another potential outcome that would be a poor outcome, and we've struggled with it in Missouri, is just getting people to participate. Um, right. It's, people are leaving money on the table because it's uh, overwhelming. I think it's scary to them. Um, and, and I don't think anyone should should do that, that these are, are programs are there for for the reasons we've discussed. Um, but is this going to have a chilling effect on on those folks that haven't participated? Um, now they see, you know, there's federal investigations going on and, and, you know, they just say, heck, we're, we're not going to fool, you know, fool with that at all. Um, that would be an unfortunate outcome too, right? Exactly. And, and I had a colleague from a, a neighboring uh, department contact me a couple months ago, uh, specifically kind of with that question, uh, is it worth uh, participating, they, their agency currently does not participate. Uh, their city council uh, had inquired about it, so uh, they were asking me uh, since they knew we participated. Uh, I sent them a lot of the information uh, that that you that you have sent me. So uh, 
it, it's it, it can be daunting, as you mentioned, for an agency that doesn't participate to see everything that's happening and everything that goes into submitting uh, the cost report and all the associated data. Uh, and it can be very intimidating to, to some of these agencies. Uh, but you're exactly right. There's money out there. Uh, whether it's as much uh, in the future as it has been in the past remains to be seen. Uh, but there is money out there to help offset some of the costs. So participation, uh, as long as you're you're getting the proper counsel, working with the proper uh, authorities with expertise in this data, uh, can can help these agencies financially without a doubt. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It can be done right and. Um... You know, it, it, it has been especially frustrating in Missouri. Um, but, and like you said, we had a call with Colorado not too long ago. Um, again, if we could just educate people and get it so that it's done correctly, it actually is not that hard, especially once you've done it one time, then it's, it's really kind of repeating the process. Um, so I certainly wouldn't want to scare, scare people away from this. And I guess, like I said, again, in that article, you know, we live and in, in operate in an industry that is highly regulated, all sorts of stuff that, that we have to comply with. Right. Um, so when people know how to do it, this is just a, another element of it. And it's a matter of. Um, working with someone and figuring it out and and then going forward it's really not that difficult exactly and and that's what I, i've been finding is uh is as you become more proficient you, you you hit the nail right on the head you just repeat the process uh for lack of a better term uh, as we get ready to wrap yeah. up uh, kevin are there any uh final clo closing thoughts that you want to leave us with uh, before we end this for today? Um, you know, I just, I, I would say, again, definitely look into compliance programs, do some research, figure out what that means, ask yourself whether you have that. If you don't, um, look into figuring out how you can um, uh, implement that. You know, I tell everybody, do this like yesterday. Um, I also say it is kind of mm -hmm. like an insurance policy, right? Um, you don't you don't go out and buy car insurance after you wreck your car. It's too late. Um, so look into that. And if you are participating in a Medicaid right. supplemental payment program, look at your audits and um, just don't take them at the word. Analyze those and make sure they're correct before you... Um, return any money. I think those are the two key takeaways from today. Excellent. Excellent. One final question unrelated to anything that we've discussed so far. Uh, what is the last book that you read? The last book that I read? Mm-hmm. Um, well, as a matter of fact, it was um, A Christmas Carol um, with my daughter. Oh, yes. Uh, one of my favorites. Uh, good yeah yeah so Fantastic. no that's um that's a that's a that's a great great question i i wish i could do more of that reading instead of all this boring legal reading but um we were fortunate to to, to read and enjoy that one together good that's excellent um you you touched on it earlier uh emscompliance.com uh, what are some other ways uh, that people can get a hold of you as far as any social media, any other? Uh, I know you have your your law firm, uh, Fairly Law uh, LLC. Um, what, uh, what, are, what's, what are ways people can contact you or find out more information about what we've discussed today? Probably the, the easiest one um, to remember in terms of email you go to emscompliance.com, there's contact information. If you want to contact me directly, um, kfairly at emscompliance.com. Uh, that's probably easier for folks to remember than the fairlyllc.com, but that's my other email is kfairly okay. at 
www.ltlc.com. Um, and then at both of those websites, there are phone numbers. Um, and I have no problem at all with people contacting me directly um, and, and asking general questions. Uh, that's, that's fine. I'll try and point you in the right direction if, if possible. Excellent. Excellent. Kevin, thank you so much for your time. Uh, for for us uh, here at the podcast, uh, we are on Instagram, not underscore a underscore fib underscore podcast. Once again, that's at not underscore a underscore fib underscore podcast. You can email us at not dot a dot fib dot podcast at gmail.com. Once again, not dot a dot fib dot podcast at gmail.com. Kevin, it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, happy New Year. And uh, thank you again for uh, for all this information that uh, that you've left us with. Thanks, Mark. It's been a pleasure and happy New Year to you and happy New Year to everyone else. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us and happy new year to all you out there. And we will talk to you next month.